Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer. Uh, my name is Jason Myers, and I'm excited today to open up God's Word with you today and discover uh, a word for us this morning. But first, let us pray. Uh, dear Father, Lord, we pray that we would meet you today uh, in your Word, God, that you would illumine to us uh, the areas of our lives where you are calling us uh, to be conformed to the image of your Son. And God, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would empower us to be the witnesses uh, of your resurrection and of your Son uh, in our lives, in our homes, and in our communities. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, I want to start off with a question this morning. Uh, who are you? Who are you? It's a question I was asked recently um, when I was traveling back from New York City uh, a few weekends ago. You see, I had run into a small problem. Uh, I hadn't updated my license in a really, really long time, and that barcode on the back got worn off, and that's the thing that they scan at a pretty important place in the airport called the security gate. Um, and I was trying to get back home, and the flight attendant looked at me, and she said, your license isn't scanning. And I said, I made it here, didn't I? And she didn't find that amusing. Um, <laughs> go figure. Um, obviously, she has very important things to do. Um, and so I said, what are we going to do? She goes, well, I can't confirm that this is you. And I said, but my, my picture's on the front. And I go, she goes, I know, but if I can't scan it, it doesn't, doesn't count. And she goes, do you have any other forms of identification? And I said, no, this was a domestic flight. And she goes, do you have anything on you that can confirm who you are? And I was like, well, I mean, I had a school ID. I took that out, showed her, showed her some credit cards. She called over her manager, and they said, all right, I think this will, uh, in essence, confirm who you are. You're, you're allowed to get on the plane, to which I was much relieved, as was my family, uh, that I could come back, right? Um, not all things are as easy to confirm, right? When we talk about who we are, we can't just flash out a card and say, okay, I'm, I'm this person. Uh, a lot of other titles that we use to talk about ourselves whether that's father, mother, student, uh, business person, these things are much harder uh, to uh, confirm. And what we're talking about here is the question of identity. Who are you? And I know these discussions of identity uh, can cause a couple different reactions. Maybe we're just tired of such conversations, or maybe they cause us to be really nervous. Obviously, if you're paying attention, uh, this question consumes much of our cultural life together. Who are we? not just in this world, but in this church. Who are we together? These are questions that are much harder sometimes to answer. Sometimes these statuses, these identities, come to define who we are. You might call yourself a father, a mother, a grandparent, uh, a student, a nurse, an accountant, a teacher. All these things kind of contribute to this understanding of who I am, of who you are. And it's also another way, whether we realize it or not, about talking about what we value. Those titles carry weight. They carry importance. And earlier, as I mentioned, these conversations are always present with us today, whether we're ready for them or not. And as much as some of us might like to run away from such conversations, I actually think that this would be a really bad move. Because you see, the Bible is also interested deeply in this conversation about identity. Here's the surprising thing. The Bible is consumed in some ways in forming the identity of a people for 
God. But the source of that identity might surprise us. In Scripture, our identity doesn't spring up from inside ourselves, but graciously comes from the outside. It's something that God graciously bestows on us. Take a, take a minute to think about the Old Testament. There we see God forming a peculiar people with a specific identity to show the world who he is. In the New Testament, we're going to find out this morning as well that Paul is likewise concerned with this issue of identity and primarily how Christ, in the story of the gospel, transforms all other identities and subsumes them into their right place under the identity of Christ. And that's going to bring us back to our passage this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll have a few of the passages on the screen as well. But I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin uh, in verse 5. You see, Paul is working with a, a church in uh, the city of Colossae uh, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, he had never uh, he had visited there, but he didn't start the church. And what we're going to see is that Paul is also working in a city and in a church full of competing identities. And we're going to meet some of those later. And the question that Paul is going to pose to the Colossians is the same one that he's going to pose to us as well. Who are you and how do you know? What is your identity? You see, Paul too was working in a sea of competing identities in the ancient world where issues of ethnicity, gender, status, all competed with one another, often in violent ways, with one another. And it's in the midst of these competing conversations that Paul is trying to form a diverse community around the identity of Christ. It seems as if in Colossians, some of the members of that community had taken their cues from various social and ethnic categories and made those their primary identity and how they, they identified themselves. And this was causing disagreements and problems with other people in the church. This is why Paul's going to talk about forgiveness and love and peace and kindness. You don't bring up those terms if those are the things that are currently operating, right? Those are reminders of practices that need to start. Because you see, it was easy in Colossae, for example, for someone who is Greek or Roman, to allow them to, to live out that identity in ways that treated others poorly from other different statuses. I think this temptation is not just for the Colossians alone. It's far too easy for us as well to allow uh, all those other terms that we sometimes use to override who we are uh, as disciples of Jesus and treat others as, as less than in some way. And we may not even intentionally do this. It may be the most natural of things. But how do these identities conflict with one another? What does it mean to be a Christian and, right? What does it mean, for example, or how do we embrace our American identity with the fact that we are part of a global church? What does our concerns as Christians, how should those relate to Christians that do not share the same geographic space as us? How does our status in terms of an economic income level affect the way we view those with more or less in the body of Christ? What levels of value do we attach to those things? And which are most important for us? For those of us who are married, how can that identity quickly become the standard for the journey of the Christian life? Quick quiz question. If you had, if you had to ask the Apostle Paul, what's the greatest relationship status you can have? He wouldn't say married. He would say single 
and devoted to the gospel of Jesus. But it's all so easy for us to see these subtle ways that just like the Colossians, we can allow our identity in Christ to take a back seat in forming how we see ourselves and how we see others. So how is Paul going to work in Colossians and allow various persons from different walks of life to begin to embrace this identity that they have in Christ? That's what we're going to look at in our passage today. So in verse 10, I want to start there. Paul says this. He speaks to the Christians in Colossae and says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here's Paul's big point in Colossians. God is currently at work with the community of God's people, putting us, the world, and all of humanity back together. And Paul talks about this in two different ways and in two different phrases uh, that he uses here, the old self and the new self. When Paul uses those terms, old self and new self, he's referring uh, to the person who has or who has not met Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the old self refers to. The new self, in contrast, is that person who's met Jesus, believed Jesus, been baptized, and filled with the Spirit. This is their new identity. It's the new self. For Paul, these are two really different ways of working out one's life, and we're going to see that unpack today. And it's going to indicate whether or not Paul sees them as part of the old creation or as part of the new creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul says that this renewal, this, this new thing that Jesus has kicked off through his resurrection takes place in the church by one identifying old self and new self. But he says that the way that we embody this is in a particular phrase. In verses 5 through 10, he says that certain things have to die to give room for certain things to grow. And so what he says in verses 5 through 10 is that there are a list of things that need to be put to death, and they're on the screen. These are the old self. These are the old practices. These are the things that compete against one another. And then he goes on to talk about the habits, practices, and actions of the new creation. So let's start back at verse 5. Paul gives us a hit list of the top signs of the old creation. And it's a pretty interesting list. We see sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covetousness which is idolatry. Then he goes on to talk about greed, lying, anger. Uh, what do all these things have in common? What, do all, what binds this list together? Is Paul just rattling off his most recent things that he's been thinking about? I don't think so. I think he's collected together a set of practices that ultimately lead to death, which is the sign of the old creation. And what Paul wants to show us is that these things actually don't bring life, but the opposite, pain and misery. Some of them we might have expected, like lust or anger, but greed may be surprising. Likewise, anger and rage are death-dealing. And if you ever notice how these attributes characterize a lot of our world, a lot of our life today, they're the, they're the reactions that we see online and in person. And that list on the screen is sometimes hard to see because if you're like me, it's easy to check a lot of those boxes. Like, that was Monday, that was Tuesday, um, that was twice on Thursday, right? Got really angry. Um, so what do we do when our lives start to look more like the old self that Paul says we should get rid of and less like the new self? How do we do that? Paul says in verse 5, pretty strong term, 
kill those things. Now, he obviously isn't meaning literally, but kill those things before they kill us, before they deal death in our lives. It may be worthwhile this week to take a look at that list and sit down with a, a, a dear friend or someone on our pastoral staff and say, I need to work through some of these things in my life. I see these things too often uh, throughout my week. And Paul says, when we can identify those things, we can start to replace them with the, with the things that Paul says we should be about. And that's going to take some honesty, though, which is why in verse 9, Paul continues. He says, do not lie to one another. Tell the truth to one another. Is there anger? Is there malice? Is there greed? That we may not be the best barometers of that in our lives. Nothing kills uh, a relationship or a life with Christ like lying either to ourselves or to one another. Because where there's lying, there isn't trust. And where there isn't trust, you can't build a new community. Telling the truth is important, and sadly, we live in a day where the truth is disregarded. And the purpose that Paul wants us to see is that if we carve out these spaces, we can see at the heart of the new creation is a new humanity, a new identity, a new way of being human. And he says that in verse 11. In verse 11, we encounter one of the most revolutionary lines, I think, in all of ancient history and in all of human history. Paul says at the heart of the new creation is a new people. He says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Often one of the things that we miss when we talk about the resurrection or the gospel or the kingdom, fill in your term, is how it creates a new people with a new identity. You see, the groups that Paul mentions may be a little unfamiliar to us, but they were very familiar to the Colossians. Gentile and Jew or Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. The Colossians knew all about these terms, I assure you. These were the terms and the ways in which the ancient world divided itself up and attached that value and worth and identity. We have race and class and status. And here's the question for Paul. Should the way that the world divides itself up and hates one another find its way into the church? And if not, what difference should there be? Let's take a look at some of those groups. Jews and Gentiles are, of course, an ethnic status in the ancient world. Jews looked down on Gentiles for not being Jewish. Gentiles thought that the Jewish groups were really weird uh, and didn't really fit in with society and should probably just be you know, left uh, to history. Uh, barbarians and Scythians, these ones might be a little bit more unusual for us. But if you're an ancient Roman... You knew that they were two different ethnic groups, at least the Scythians. In fact, the term barbarian uh, is an ancient ethnic slur for ethnic groups that you don't like. Um, you would call them barbarians. They, they are uncivilized. Um, and it goes back to the ways that they talk. They use a different language, right? And you don't know that language. So you would say that they were kind of babbling or barbering, right? And so they gave them the term barbarian. Um, and so if you called someone that, you were, you were slamming them. You were putting them down. Uh, and so this term... Um, would have been, these terms would have been familiar and maybe even used in poor taste by the Colossians. They're the ways that they're referring to other people in their midst. Of course, slave and free was the fundamental social 
class distinction in the ancient world. And so when the Colossians hear these terms, they say, yeah, that's exactly how our divided and broken world looks. That's the box I either put myself in or that was the, book, that was the box I was put into. Um, and I walk into the church in Colossae and the question is, is this community going to treat me any differently? Because these are groups that don't get along. These are groups that mistreat one another and oppress one another and speak poorly about one another. And Paul wants to say that the new creation through Jesus speaks into that division and animosity. It doesn't say, don't, you know, don't refer to those terms. It says, let's, let's name them and then talk about them and say how they're not appropriate to this new identity that is being formed in Christ. Don't miss what Paul is doing here. Paul believes that in the community of Jesus, the new creation, the new humanity has started. He calls it the renewal in verse 11. The renewal is underway, and one of those things being renewed is the identity of the community of Jesus. Those different groups of people all make up the Colossian church where Paul is writing this letter. And those signs of the old self, those are at work behind those terms. That's why Paul reminds them of kindness and peace and forgiveness and love, because those social divisions are creating heartache and, and, and division. And these are the signs of the old creation, Paul says. They're not the signs of what Jesus is doing. And we need to remember that the early Christians met together across these divisive lines. They were trying something radically explosive in the ancient world. And everyone thought it would fail. But providentially, by the power of the Spirit, we stand today as a witness that it didn't fail. Did it have heartaches and problems along the way? Of course it did. But it stood to the testimony of a new world that was being created. Too often, we tell ourselves a too small story of the gospel, of the good news. Often the gospel is all about our individual transformation, how we can be better at ABC, we can be nicer, we can be kinder, which are all good things, not bad things. And that's not entirely untrue, but it's simply one piece of the larger work that God is doing. And Paul gives us a glimpse into that, that all of creation is being reconciled back unto God and to God's self, as it was in the beginning. God's salvation is for all of creation. It includes you and God, but also includes you and us and people who don't look like us and God. And every part, every inch is being reclaimed and renewed by its creator. And relationships between people are at the very center of that process. And Paul's words strike at the heart of all division. Paul's message here would radically change the way that these groups on the screens would relate to one another, both inside and, more importantly, outside the Christian dwelling. There's a radical worth in this new identity where people are given their identity in Christ. Because Christ is in them, they are now brothers and sisters. They now have a bond with one another, a care for one another that transcends all natural ways of relating to other people. And just to be clear, Paul isn't saying that these differences don't exist. They do. They are acknowledgeable differences. But that their value in the community is not what, going, is, not what is going to determine someone's worth or involvement. What's primary is at the end of that verse. It's Christ. That is the goal. He is all and in all. And the primary identity for Jesus, 
for Jesus followers is this, is Christ. The resurrected Christ marks his people with his life and his identity, and a change of identity is at the heart of a resurrected people. We've all changed in identity, and we've been given the identity in Christ, and this sets our priorities and our plans and our purposes over against all other interests. And we're now united with him and with one another. But how does the community do this? That sounds great to say, okay, that's a new title, that's a new status, that's a new identity. I need to stop certain things, but what do I do going forward? Well, that's where the practices in the second half of the verse come in, in verses 12 through 17. These are essential. This is the new self, the new identity, the new creation. Paul says this, it looks like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. These things are going to be the things that heal the groups together. And they're going to picture a new way, a radical way, of being human. But let's see this properly, though. Imagine you were transported back into the first century, into Colossae, and you sit down in a church, uh, and you happen to sit down right next to a Roman citizen. They're a, they're a soldier, uh, they're uh, sitting there in a community, and on a Sunday, they're sitting right next to a Scythian. They're just smack dab right next to each other, they happen to walk in at the same time, grab the same coffees, walked in. Uh, the Roman citizen has been trained to think of themselves as the best person in the entire world. They live in the greatest empire the world has ever seen. They are massively successful. Uh, they are very, very proud of who they are. What about the Scythian, a conquered group by Rome? Uh, they probably have stories about how their parents or their grandparents were either killed in battle or enslaved and taken to a new city where they didn't want to belong. What happens when the Scythian begins his prayer request that things are really difficult for him in the city of Colossae? That he's being spoken of poorly, that he was on the street and someone called him a barbarian. And he was right next to his friend and his friend laughed. How are these relationships meant to interact with one another? How might the Roman citizen begin to put on the new self of new creation? How might they practice compassion, kindness, humility, forgiveness, and love. That's what this list is meant to do. It's meant to get them to think about their lives with one another and the ways in which they can relate to one another in, in new and radical ways. Paul begins with compassion and with kindness. This is one of the first things we're going to need and that Roman Christian. Our world is often so devoid of the simple act of compassion. We live in a vacuum of compassion. We far, far too often are compassionless and cold and stark to some of the troubles in our world. Paul adds to this humility and meekness. How do we have humility and meekness towards one another? It's going to take a good degree of humility to realize that helping the concerns of others may come at a cost of the priorities that we have. In fact, for all these groups that Paul mentions, free to slave, Jew to Gentile, Greek to barbarian, they need humility to lay aside those ways that they think about one another and listen to the needs of others who don't share their experience. And we need humility as well. What would it look like to practice radical humility towards one another, towards people that we feel like we have nothing in common with? That's the place where Paul says new creation 
springs forth? Who are the groups that have been demonized today? That as Christians, brothers and sisters, we say, we're one family. That's not the way we'd want our family to be treated. We need compassion. We need humility. Finally, Paul concludes with forgiveness and love in verses 13 and 14. The unity of of God's community is built on the foundation of love for one another. And what makes this difficult is that this love does not come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to groups that we're different from. And Paul says this is the foundation of this community. We truly know we love one another when we forgive. That is a true test of our love. Failure to forgive is often a deeper failure, a deeper to love someone as ourselves. This is where, as we look, the Colossian church would have a lot of forgiving to do. These social tensions, once they started worshiping together, an abundance of grace, forgiveness, and love would be needed to be reconciled. And the important part about forgiveness is that it's the catalyst to reconciliation. And Paul puts it in terms here of renewal. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. The church cannot be a renewed community unless it's a forgiving community. So as we conclude today, Jesus shows us this way. This all comes back to Christ who is all and is in all. These attributes of the new creation are most profoundly and importantly actualized and realized in the image of our creator towards us in the beauty of the gospel. We were the ones who were once estranged and we were the ones who experienced God's love, compassion, kindness, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And we are the recipients of these things. We have been forgiven and beloved by God in the gift of the gospel. We've been given a new identity. And at the table, we recognize that Christ was put to death. He was killed so that the old self might be put to death as well. Christ was raised so that the new self, the new creation, might be raised too. And at the table, we are invited to gather as a picture of that renewed community with this new identity of Christ that God is creating by the power of his spirit. And to that we say, amen.